Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my friend, I've missed you. What do you do in between taking back America, sir? Do you have some downtime to find yourself in between? Well, I'm going to confess something. The pandemic led us to join Netflix. We had avoided Netflix until about a year ago. And then by way of other family members, we couldn't resist. The binge train, Professor K, welcome. (laughs) Well, this summer, I've actually forgotten how many things I've binged. First, I binged something called Beauty and the Beast. And I only made it through like a season and a half or whatever. It got got redundant. I don't know. (laughs) Boring, redundant. And then I discovered, this is kind of cute. I actually discovered something from Australia, a teenage series. I knew I'd forget the title, but it's about these teenagers, some of whom had magical powers and others did not. And it's all set in Australia. And it was cute as could be. Then I got into this series that five seasons it it was on the magicians dark and gruesome and gory and also utterly silly and made you laugh at times but now i've been binging on a show that had four seasons in turkey might be it might be a netflix original it's called the protector for a thousand years there's been this battle between the immortals who were the evil guys who want to destroy istanbul and all of humanity and this one guy who's the protector it's not that he's got supercharged powers is that thousand years ago, some ruler provided uh, a shirt and a, and a dagger and a ring. It would protect him from the immortals. It would help him detect the presence of the immortals. Anyhow, and right now I'm in the middle of the third season. I, I can't resist. It's just remarkable. So this is what you do now, Professor K. Instead of, you know, filling the lesson plan, now you just fill your cue. But I've ordered a number of books that are... <laughs> For the record. <laughs> and, and I used to make it my responsibility to read conservative writers so that other people wouldn't have to. I know Newt Gingrich's work. And in the book, Take Hold of Our History, I think there's one or two, at least one good lengthy essay where I go after Newt Gingrich's view of the world and religion and American history. And he's got another book coming out this fall. I know he's less significant now, but I couldn't resist taking it up. Recently, I actually read three Ben Shapiro books, which actually I couldn't even bear to, to try to really work on them and read that. It's just for a guy with a, with a law degree from Harvard and supposedly so smart. It's just it's just ridiculous stuff. And I was on the verge of, of buying Mark Levin's American Marxist. And I actually did an evening with the guys at Left Reckoning, David uh, Griscom and Matt Leck. And Matt took on the book and I said, wow, this is good. You've saved me from having to buy it. <laughs> Back in the 1990s, I was watching that Fox cable crap. And back then I was watching that stuff. I even used to watch Glenn Beck. In fact, Glenn Beck became a target of mine because Glenn Beck claimed that he was channeling Thomas Paine. And by the way, the weirdest thing was he claimed he was channeling Thomas Paine. And every one of the arguments in his book, Common Sense, 
by Glenn Beck was utterly the opposite, 180 degrees the opposite. I burned out. Not in a million years could I turn on Fox News, especially Tucker Carlson is just, you know, they created, I don't even want to say a special place in hell because it doesn't matter, but Tucker Carlson is just, it went from what, O'Reilly to Hannity to Carlson. It was like vile, viler, the vilest. <laughs> and doing what we're doing every week, every Tuesday, taking back America, but coming at it from a progressive angle, it's a shot of positivity from a progressive angle. It's not just doom and gloom. And, and for me, I find that more effective. Good point. And you know what? I have a book coming next week. I just remembered. It's by the, a former editor of the Wall Street Journal. And I can assure you, if we're later in the fall, when I get my hands on the Gingrich book, I'll, I know I'll want to say something. And I can't wait for you to say it. I can't wait to hear it. Before we get into the big episode, Professor K, we had this conversation a little bit off air. As you know, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, we are entering, what is this, our third year of a pandemic school year? The spring of 2020 is right at spring break. We all left the university and to go online and we didn't go back last year and I retired because I didn't want to teach online. So this is the second year we're starting up in the pandemic. So this year, my colleagues are going back into the classroom, but I believe they'll be masked. Especially with folks going back into the classroom. I mean, how do you process this new normal for you, my friend? Well, I got to stop binging on these TV shows. <laughs> There we go. So I'll tell you what, maybe I'll become all the more obsessed with the new football season. I got to find a way, if these books antagonize me enough, I'll try to find an outlet to write review essays on them. I always write well when I get pissed off, so. Well, I think we got a great thing to tee us up for this week, my friend, as we are reclaiming our radical past, taking back America with myself and Professor Harvey K. We have talked about common sense and Thomas Paine. Last week, we went into the declaration with an assist from Langston Hughes, and this week, my my friend. We're going to touch on a few different things, but the through line of it all is the Constitution, correct? Yeah, well, in fact, a good way to look at it is it's that we're now going to have the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. We're going to go preamble, a little reference to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And then because the question of rights is on the agenda, we're going to take up the last of Thomas Paine's radical, democratic, and social democratic pamphlets that he wrote during the 1790s in the wake, he wasn't in the States at the time, but in the wake of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, when he offers in Rights of Man, a two-volume pamphlet in which he's challenging, once again, aristocracy in Europe, but also says, think about the fact if you got rid of monarchy and aristocracy, what you could do with the resources you've liberated. And he begins to lay out what we would think of as kind of a model or a vision of social democracy. We'll get there. And then similarly, we're going to go to the pamphlet that makes Thomas Paine really the godfather of social security, as well as the founding or pioneering figure in thinking about social democracy. So we're going to do a kind of arc from constitution to this question of social democracy. I'm still not over how you got me last week. Yeah, I'm really I'm... proud of that. I, I, I really... <laughs> you should be. So the preamble to the constitution. I wish the preamble to the constitution could really become a more powerful tool of law and legislation. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States 
of America. And those first three words, you know, we all take it for granted. Everybody knows we the people. They may not be able to recite the rest, but if Josh only had his way, people, when they're growing up, when they're in elementary school, at some point it would learn to recite that. And I want to subscribe to it. I just don't like Josh Hawley's determination to deny slavery and anti-slavery were persistent questions in American life, and that racism was a fundamental element in that struggle over slavery persisted even after, in fact, became all the more a weapon in some ways afterwards. I studied Latin American history, and and I did a lot of British and European stuff before I became an Americanist, and I hadn't realized that the debate over the Constitution included the debate over the first three words of the preamble, because there were those who would have been very glad to say, we the states of the United States, because they wanted to maintain a certain sovereignty to the states, which we later know as the term states' rights. And there's an irony in in that debate as to how it came to be we the people. I don't know if people remember from the last couple of weeks, but there was one figure in the revolution and at the writing of the declaration, a man named Governor Morris, who was a a lawyer and a merchant and spent time in Philadelphia and New York, mostly identified with New York State. Morris himself had little respect for the people, very little respect for the people. In fact, he was utterly hostile to Thomas Paine, both during the revolution and later, as people might recall, during the French Revolution, when Payne was thrown in prison and Governor Morris was the American ambassador who refused to help get Payne out of prison. I mean, he he hated him. So it's interesting to realize, and I read this in in a work by a conservative who I trust, in fact, very much, a man named Richard Brookheiser, whose name I think I might have mentioned before, really one of the finest writers on figures of the revolution, even though he and I differ politically, I really do admire his writing. And in his book on Governor Morris, he points out that it's Morris who was insistent and really, really stuck to it of getting we the people into the preamble because he did not want the possibility of states' rights advocates using the very constitution against the constitution. And by the way, the word leaving out a key thing was meant to replace the Articles of Confederation, which was just really loosely bound together the, the 13 states. The federal government couldn't even impose taxes on all of those on all of those colonies. So we the people, he was very assistant. And fortunately for later history, we the people was the phrase used. Because seriously speaking, you could readily imagine any number of occasions, not only on the question of slavery, where states might well have have seceded or at least insisted in an even more aggressive way on states' rights. A second thing I think is is worth noting, as you and I agree, we're not going to go through the Constitution. We want to highlight things that people can take away. I promise that we're going to turn to the slavery question. But thing that generally people overlook, and they overlook this even with common sense of Thomas Paine, you know, all the way through, because we so take for granted freedom of worship, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, that we forget the fact there is absolutely no reference to God in the U.S. Constitution. Now, I know that upsets conservatives. We have a godless constitution, right? But I will remind everyone that the Declaration itself, though, is there is reference to the Creator. It's a decidedly deist version of God, not the Christian version of God. However much Christians are the majority, however much they were all you know, in the majority then and now, we are not a Christian nation. We are a secular nation that has a certain popular 
social commitment to faith. The other important thing to remember, again, is that there are no property requirements in the Constitution to hold office, even though these were prominent men, many of them prominent property holders, and thing that we cannot avoid, prominent slaveholders. But there is no mention of a requirement of property to hold office. But I do want to point out that you don't have to be a, a native-born American to be a representative. And you can imagine how many outstanding immigrants, past and present, have served in the House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate. You have to be born a citizen to be president, but that's a different thing. And they, and that came in handy to keep Arnold Schwarzenegger, as far as I'm concerned, from becoming president. Especially now, as we've seen so many different council meetings and county meetings, you know, the mass mandates are back in the news and the public discourse portion of those meetings, citing the Constitution for this. And as someone who is such a student of this, and to watch these meetings and these hearings and just to co-opt the Constitution in just the most ass-backwards of fashions, how do you stay sane as you watch the news and you hear this? Well, look, I mean, you and I fully recognize that it really is the case that we are in the midst of a crisis. A former student of mine who actually has experienced the very question that you're talking about, so he's on the village board out in central Wisconsin in his hometown, and He's the only progressive on the board, from what I can tell. And the question came up on the school board, which he's not a member of, as to whether or not they should be masked in classrooms. But it also came up a whole series of questions that are related to this about masking in meetings and so on and so forth. And when he speaks on anything from questions of diversity to questions of masking up, whether it's in a village board meeting where he is a member or in the school board where he goes as an interested citizen, when he speaks, they will literally, from the gallery, you might say, shout, trade commie. I mean, we're, we're at a moment where the division between, I won't even say left and right, between simply people who are either liberal or progressive on the one hand, or conservative reactionary on the other, is so severe that any kind of civil society is, is in jeopardy, seriously in jeopardy. It seems to me like we have those who are in favor of the actual contents of the Constitution, like what we're doing now, breaking it down to its fullest extent, which in our opinion, if read to the letter, is a rather bold, progressive document. On the other side, you've got folks who aren't interested in the actual contents of the Constitution, but more of the cult of the Constitution. You know, you're in the state of Kansas. Sorry, no, you're in Missouri. But it happens all the time in your legislature, I'm sure, and cross over into Kansas. And they have had a governor recently and others who were very eager if they could turn Kansas into a Christian state, which they can't. It's unconstitutional. But, you know, they try over and over again. They've tried over and over again for the past 220 years to try to get Americans to bow to the idea that this is a Christian nation. When we do this kind of thing, I'm not fooling myself. I don't believe for a moment we're going to change people's minds. But I do want to encourage people who are like-minded with us to realize when they're in those kinds of settings that they don't have to defer or bow to those who argue the United States is a Christian nation, nor should they assume that property holders have more right to speak than working people themselves. Kind of jotting down the bullet points, we've got the we the people of it all, we've got the religious or lack thereof of it all, and that's not a slight on anyone's personal religion, it's just saying that by not having that 
prerequisite. It opens it up for all of us. It makes it more of a populist document. And we've also got that compromise, right? You've got that slavery aspect that wasn't said, but also was a compromise to get the Constitution through so that the Constitution doesn't just become, you know, a song from Schoolhouse Rock. What do you think are the actual through lines? I'll start with a point I believe Thomas Paine himself made that, you know, we really ought not to be historical chauvinists about things. I mean, we of the 21st century, if we cannot appreciate the degree to which we cannot always prevail we're blind to the realities around us. Thus, if we believe that we, the people of the United States, was not an important act, that the creation of the United States is not an important act, then we are going to fall into another trap, which is to assume that all these guys were merely shits, okay? Well, yeah, in a way, a goodly number were, but it's also the case that they did build into the Constitution by way of leaving out certain kinds of words, a possibility that things could change radically. Unfortunately, decidedly, not as rapidly, as quickly, and as radically as you and I might well look back and hope for. But we can't be historical chauvinists. We ought to understand the nature of the compromise. The expectation on the part of many a Northern representative was that slavery would die of its own accord because their assumption was slavery would not extend beyond the already existing slave states. Later, of course, as the compromises continue, you know, the Missouri Compromise, well, you're in Missouri, man, you know. I mean, as a kid, I at least took pride in the fact New Jersey, though slavery had existed, slavery was abolished early on after the, the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Here's the key thing, and I'm, we're, we're forgetting to tell people that, yes, slavery is in its own way silently acknowledged. How would you say? Loudly but silently acknowledged. I don't think I ever might use that in a classroom, but it sounds decent. And what do I mean by loudly? Well, the question came up, of course, as to how they would count the population to decide representation, which continues to this day. And we've seen the struggle and the struggle is going to be underway now around the census. And they made a compromise. The population of the United States around the time was probably not much over 3 million. 500,000 of the 3 million might well have been African-American. The overwhelming majority of those folks lived in the South as slaves, not all, but overwhelmingly in slavery. The North had its slaves, but they were not a significant proportion of the population. And this is an interesting point. They did not want the Southern states to be able to count the slaves as full persons because they weren't being treated as persons. They were being treated as property. And this would literally have given Southern slaveholders all the more power than they already had and and would actually get in a fashion. So they arrived at this compromise, the three-fifths compromise, that each one of those slaves would be counted as three-fifths. But it's interesting to read this and then to consider what that meant. Three-fifths of all other persons, capital P. You can imagine that as disappointed as the Northern abolitionist members that they couldn't get rid of slavery, at least slaves themselves are at that moment being recognized fully in the Constitution as persons, which provides for a terribly dramatic and tragic contradiction in the Constitution. But it's also the case, and I want to remind everyone that you and I have a certain affection for Frederick Douglass, putting it mildly, who we'll get to soon enough. And Frederick Douglass was originally a Garrisonian. William Lloyd Garrison was the foremost abolitionist of his day and a remarkable man, a really outstanding figure. But Garrison, first of all, did not believe in politics as such. He believed in moral suasion, that people should come to this understanding of, of the evils of slavery and bring an end to slavery in that way. And it didn't you didn't have to lobby Congress or whatever else in hopes those people would see the light and, and bring an end to, to slavery. So Garrison said, hey, if the South wants to secede, that's great. 
because we don't want to be associated with that evils of slavery. In fact, he probably would have liked to see the North, at least by his own rhetoric, the North secede. Well, Douglas was a Garrisonian, but at a certain point in his career, he came to see the founding documents in a new way. So that instead of seeing the Constitution as not simply the work of hypocrites, but literally as embodying the evil of slavery, he came to see the founding documents, Declaration of Constitution, in terms of the promise embedded within them, and moreover, to see that the promise transcended, as we said over the last couple of weeks, transcended the hand that wrote it. So it's important that, that, that we recognize that as much as slavery is loudly spoken of, it's silently spoken of. And the reason it is that way is that the founders, most especially those who wanted to see its ultimate abolition, were utterly embarrassed by slavery. Look, they fought a revolution for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They created a new nation that they believed was going to be a light unto the world, you might say, that it was going to show the world that we, the people, could govern ourselves. And here they, here it was, this new nation, as Thomas Paine himself was worried, was already marked by this evil of slavery. But they could not bring themselves to have that founding document, thinking of the millennia ahead, declaring that this was a nation that literally embrace slavery. So they, they refuse to include the word. Now I'm curious though, do you think sometimes the lack of those certain words, do we give them a pass, maybe overly assuming that they were going to eventually get to where they wanted to be. I mean, we can say that they believed slavery was going to die out, but at that time, it wasn't close. It time. wasn't close, but of course, it was It was brought to an end in the northern states. That, that was the beginning. It also as Lincoln would argue later, was excluded from the Northwest Territories. It could not expand in that direction. Tragically, as the Missouri Compromise showed, there would be the Southwest Territories where it could expand into. You know, when I talk like this, people sometimes think I'm, I'm an apologist for the founders. Well, damn it, I'm not. I'm not. There's only one founder who I, I literally truly embrace, and that's Thomas Paine. And the others, I've always been skeptical of. I admire the words that Jefferson was capable of authoring, but not the words that he then authors in something called the Notes on Virginia, in which he was a racialist, Jefferson, and, and, a, and a really perverse and bizarre one when you consider he was in love and had children with Sally Hemings. This is not maybe the time to get into it fully, but Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Jefferson's late wife, because Jefferson's wife's father slept with one or more of his slaves, and Sally Hemings was the child from one of those moments. And Sally Hemings apparently looked like the, in quote, sort of darker skinned version of Jefferson's wife. And then to add to it is that he never actually gave her her freedom during all those years. I don't know. I mean, it, even now, I, I find it hard to believe it's so perverse that a man who could author the declaration could also do that. That's where I can understand where I'm 29, Harvey. I can understand where some of my friends say, you know what? I hear stories like that about that guy who's supposedly some hero. And for them, they don't want to even look at the piece of paper because the messenger ruined it so much for him. In that notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson reveals his racism when he, he really does distinguish between white talents and black talent. And he actually writes African-Americans off as not having a poetic rhythm. I mean, it's actually bizarre to read it. But at the same time, as I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Jefferson hated slavery because he really knew the threat it represented. So the Constitution, let's not be naive about it. It speaks loudly of slavery, reeks loudly. But on the other hand, it was authored in such a way as to not confer on slavery the same kind of status as 
we the people and you know what it means to be a citizen and, and so on and so forth. What we should do is, Arzul, is we won't worry about Thomas Paine's later pamphlets right now. And we'll tell people that when they hear this tomorrow, as you and I are recording right now, that we will deal with rights of man and especially agrarian justice. In fact, it's a good time next week, which is Labor Day, Monday, and then on the Tuesday following, we can talk about agrarian justice, about social security, a social democracy and those things. So at one point, I really, really do want to make about Bill, Bill of Rights. And I want to make it in terms of the First Amendment, which to me is, is what it's all about. I mean, somebody else is like, no, no, it's the Second Amendment, my right to bear arms. And we could get into a debate about that, not you and I, but with others, perhaps. I mean, if you read the Second Amendment, I sure as hell can't imagine people being entitled to owning a bazooka. I mean, it's, it's meant to be in favor of a militia, you know, to defend themselves against hostile enemies, not, uh, not each other. But that First Amendment, I read a book, came out a few years ago. I think it's titled Madison's Music. And if you read that First Amendment, it never dawned on me when I was reading it all those times, the kind of music that it, that it had and the developmental fashion that it was written in. I'll just point out to people so they, don't, they know now, there are four liberties in the First Amendment, four freedoms in the First Amendment. And I'm going to ask you, Hartzell, this time to read it, and then we can come back and take it up. Amendment 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. Beautifully done. And I want to point out, I sometimes ask my students, I have fun because it forces them to read it and think about it. It's like, how many freedoms are in the First Amendment? And, and by the way, the, the answer is not absolute, though I think I'm right. Many of them would say five because they would say, well, it's the freedom of religion. It's the freedom of speech. It's freedom of the press. It's the freedom of, of assembly and freedom to petition. But actually, it's four, I believe, because when you read it, it's peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. But one thing I do want to point out is this. I never realized until I read that book about Madison's music, what is taking place in this First Amendment? And it's sort of blatant. I'm going to say this, and everyone who listens to this is going to say, you didn't know that, Harvey K? You didn't know that, Professor K? Wow, how dense are you? Okay, <laughs> But I'm not embarrassed. One thing you have to learn, if you're a good intellectual, you're willing to confess you don't know some. So it says, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This first piece really is freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. If you like, that's that deepest set of understandings within us. I won't use the word soul, but it's an awakening. Yeah. Yes. Freedom of conscience, yeah. consciousness within us individually. And then it's freedom of speech. Well, that is what you believe. You can exercise it in your religion, but you have the right to speak about what you believe and what you think. That's freedom of speech. So now it goes from within you and perhaps your relationship with God, if that's how you understand it. But from within you, now you get to say it. You speak it. So it's within you and it's coming out of your mind through your voice. Now, this is all written, of course, before the age of Zoom, before the age of the, of, of the telephone. So what we have to think about is that when they say freedom of speech, they do mean exactly that, speech, either one-on-one -on -one or to large groups. And then it goes on, or of the press. And this is where your thoughts, your ideas, your arguments can be communicated over lengths of territory and beyond the day because there are no recording devices. The press enables us to say it so that tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years from now, in other words, you can speak to those who come after you. Fourth, 
right of the people peaceably to assemble. Now, the reason I say there's only four is to petition the government for redress of grievances, what what these folks are imagining is you assemble not to hear a concert. You assemble to deliberate or indeed to let like-minded people join with you in expressing what you like and what you don't like about the way in which the community, the state, the nation is governed. It's a matter of power. It's a matter of authority. And you have the right to assemble with others. Now, others are not required to turn out with you, but let's assume they do. And let's assume that in the course of this gathering, you've come up with shared understandings that you want as a collective to express. And you want to express it to the government, your government. And that's to petition the government for a redress of those grievances. So here we go. It's within you. You speak it. You communicate it through space and time. And then also you can gather with others if you want to address the state of affairs in your polity, local, state, or national. I never thought about it as sort of developmental, you know, from me to to you and me, to us, the way it expands and its expansion can lead literally to dissent and activism and action. That first freedom, freedom of conscience and the exercise of your conscience, you could say. I mean, it's really saying that government cannot impose, the federal government cannot impose a state religion upon you. Jefferson later is the one who spoke specifically of a wall that that First Amendment established between church and state. And I want to remind everyone, if they were with us uh, when we did Common Sense, that at least five times in Common Sense, Paine emphasized the importance of freedom of conscience and separation of church and state in the creation of the new nation. I mean, in some ways, again, I, I see Paine as this really essential founding figure before and above all else. But along the way, he obviously made this kind of difference because Americans were diverse in their faiths at that time, very diverse in their faiths, multiple Christian faiths, as well as Catholicism, which is a Christian faith, but for some Protestants, it wasn't quite viewed that way. But also there were Jews and there were deists and probably rather silent among their folks were atheists as well. But, you know, it's interesting. Religious believers generally were hostile to the memory of Thomas Paine because of his attack on organized religion in his pamphlet, The Age of Reason. But it's interesting that in 1932, a leading Catholic magazine thanked Thomas Paine's common sense for insisting that when the new nation was created, it would involve the separation of church and state, because if it had not, it might well have been the case that there would have been places, states, that might well have banned the Catholic Church. I mean, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and others, you know, they viewed the Catholic Church as not Christian. They were papists, they would say. We've broken this thing down a bit. And again, I'm just, I'm looking at the TV right now. I've got a press conference with a bunch of anti-maskers and they're yelling constitution stuff at a meeting. We just talked about the constitution. As I'm looking at my screen, how can we as progressives, as we're taking back America, how can we take back this constitution? What I would say is to all of those who are suffering, suffering their abuse, I would say, remember the United States was founded as a secular nation. The constitution is godless and your beliefs are your own and you have a right to take those beliefs into the public realm, but you cannot impose them upon others. 
When we come back, we're going to preview next week's episode, which includes another deep dive into a a hero of Professor Harvey K's, and I think you know who it is. And what I can also say is I bet you don't know what he's talking about, but this is revolutionary, especially for its time. Yes, we ran out of time this week. When we get going, we get going, don't we? Yeah, it's always funny as we go into this, I think we have that much to say, and we didn't really even get into the football question in this episode. So (laughs) So we're going to go to two, two more pamphlets of Thomas pain. We looked at common sense in 1776, and we talked about the crisis of 1776, those two pamphlets. We're now going to go to pamphlets that Thomas Paine wrote in the 1790s, after the Constitution was enacted, after the Bill of Rights became a part of the Constitution. Paine is in France. You might say he's helping inspire originally the, the French Revolution, or at least encourage it. And he's in France, and won't go through the full story, but he writes two very important pamphlets, one of which is actually a two pamphlets unto itself. Rights of Man, okay, which we'll get to because it is a, a, an original place where social democracy is outlined. And then we're going to turn to agrarian justice, a short pamphlet that people can readily access. Both are accessible online. They can actually print out agrarian justice. It wouldn't cost you very much at all. It's a very short pamphlet in which Payne actually outlines, envisions, projects social security. And what year was this, Professor K? That was published in 1797. You know, how was this lost to my education? I didn't hear anything about this growing up. For 200 years, conservatives did everything they could to suppress Thomas Paine's memory because he was a radical Democrat, a revolutionary who envisioned a truly democratic America, number one. Number two, he was the one who inspired in the revolution, inspired farmers and laborers and others, as we saw with the fears of John Adams and others. He inspired laboring and working people to rise up and make the revolution a more democratic struggle than the founders, as we call them, might well have wanted. And then later, he writes Age of Reason, where he challenges Christian churches. He then writes Rights of Man. He's calling for democracy to go beyond political democracy to social and economic democracy. So you can imagine the efforts that have been pursued all these couple of hundred years to suppress the memory of not only Thomas Paine, but of his arguments. Professor Harvey Kay, he is the professor of democracy at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Before I let you go, though, and I feel like I know at least two of the three, but on your, you know, your top three list of heroes, I got to think Thomas Paine's up there. I got to think FDR is probably number two. Who's number three on your list? Or am I completely off on this one? Well, I mean, if we were talking about sort of 19th century figures, then clearly it's got to be Lincoln and Frederick Douglass together. Sort of, or as James Oakes wrote in his book, The Radical and the Republican, Douglas and Lincoln, and they're antagonistic and yet what becomes eventually a friendship relationship. Uh, and Lincoln is extraordinary and Douglas is just brilliant. Okay, so, but if we're talking 20th century or even from 19th into 20th, another guy who's just really my hero and we will look at him, I hope at some point, is Eugene Debs, the socialist. I mean, he, he really was to me just absolutely wonderful and great. Ran for president from prison, right? Well, yeah, and that was the third time I think he ran for president. Yeah, he ran a few times. One time he almost got a million votes. You know, he was a beloved figure amongst working people. I mean, he really was. And then, of course, another hero of mine would be Aaron Rodgers. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Harvey K., the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. We're taking back America, my friend, one episode at a time, and I love doing it. Great to see you. As you and I know, we're looking at each other by way of Zoom, and always great to talk to you. Pleasure, my friend. See you next week. If there's one thing that I found is as true as the sunrise, it's that I like being on there with Hartzell. The KC Morning Show.
you're listening.